Welcome to Traif, a debatably Jewish podcast. To our dear listeners, we have some fantastic news for all three of you. CKUT, the fine establishment that has partially allowed us to record in their studios, <laughs> has actually given us a monthly time slot at 11 a.m. on the first Friday of every month. I'd like to thank my high school Chumash teacher. I'd like to thank uh, every copy of the Jewish Tribune I had to read when I was in the bathroom at my mother's house. It all, it's, it all led to here. There's no doubt that those are seminal events in your life that have led you to get a monthly time slot at CKUT. And just to be clear, we're still going to come out with a podcast every two weeks. So the live broadcast will not actually change how often our shows come out. But it does give us the ability of doing a couple of things that we haven't been able to do so far. For example, our upcoming War on Christmas episode. So if anyone is listening and has an idea of ways that you would like to see us participate in a war on Christmas in Montreal, please get in touch, uh, trayofpodcast.gmail.com. Yeah, we're, we're trying to contribute to the hashtag war on Christmas campaign that is perceived as a legitimate concern by certain segments of the North American population. And we would like to help bolster that concern. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what do we have on the show today, Sam? We have someone from Demilitarized McGill who came to talk to us about Remembrance Day and the actions that they had under the hashtag Remember This, which were a series of events that happened last week and one that's happening uh, on Wednesday the 18th, which is tonight when you're listening. And, or, and we're also going to be checking in on the institutional Jewish community in Canada following the election of one Justin Trudeau. And after that, we're going to have another installment of our BDS Watch Watch segment. So once again, thank you to CQT. Thank you to the Canadian Jewish News. And thanks to my high school Gemara teacher. David, I know you're an, an avid uh, Jewish media consumer. Well, um, only, only since we started the show. I feel like you were the one who always read it anyway. That's true. <laughs> my consumption of Jewish media has not changed one bit. But I was wondering if you picked up that this golden nugget that came out this morning um, about the hair salon that is being uh, sued for $20,000. No, by who? So it's a Jewish-owned hair salon oh. that is preventing their employee from working on a Saturday because he's Jewish. So the actual establishment is open on Saturday, but they only allow the non-Jewish employees. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's a secular Jew who wants to work on Saturday yeah. and is bringing a lawsuit against yes, them? around the Human Rights Commission in Quebec because he feels like his his religiousness is being violated by them not allowing him to work on Saturday. That's so interesting. Which way do you think this is going to go? I have no idea. Oh, I've never heard of that situation before. Yeah. It's just bizarre. That is bizarre. Do you know any of the people involved? Unfortunately not. Oh, that's a shame. We should get yeah. in touch with them. Yeah. Uh, if anyone knows this hairstylist, uh, send us an email. I mean, we could probably just call them. So. No, to be honest, um, the apparently it, it seems like a sketchy operation because the name of the establishment keeps changing. So wait, what kind of, like, are they a Hasidic hair salon? It doesn't seem that way. Is I mean, there such thing as a Hasidic hair salon? To be honest, there's no, I have no, I mean, there's Hasidic hair stylists who make hair. Who make hair? Like, make women's hair. You mean wigs? Yeah. That's not actual hair. It is hair, though. 
The, the, the Hasidic wigs are all made of human hair? I don't know about all of them, but a, a lot of wigs are made out of human hair. I mean, those are really expensive ones. But I... Um, what about men? Like, what about like a barbershop? I don't know. That's a good question. A Hasidic barbershop. Why yeah. is that not a trope? You know what? They probably exist, but they're probably all... underground. <laughs> um, if they they probably just have all the tinted windows and no signs like all, like all the shuls. Yeah, the interesting part for me about this hairstyling case is it's unclear how the owner of the salon picked up on kind of cues as to how this person was actually Jewish. But it is a kind of huge violation of someone's freedom of religion, freedom of expression stuff. Because like, what if they just had a Jewish last name or like looked for you on Jew or not Jew? That's a website. <laughs> yeah. It's a website called Jew, not Jew. Yeah. Check it out. Jew, oh, hold or on, Jew, hold not on. Jew. I'm going to check this out right now. It's Jew or not Jew. Yeah. O-R not Jew. Yeah. It, it came up when you wrote or. Dot com. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god they have that horrible fake hebrew font the yeah English words why is john landis on the front page of this uh they they just put random people on. what happened to john landis in 1990 what the hell is no this? but like just check oh out my god juice score no do like surprise me for example Where's on that? the left jack nicholson he got a five so does that what does that mean there's a whole explanation why is it not just jew or not jew either at the bottom there's a verdict oh not a jew yeah, but like for... oh, but he got a high Jew score even though he's yes, not a Jew. Exactly, that's very impressive. So they give non-Jews high Jew scores. There's all these different categories. Yeah, so sociopaths. Cool. <laughs> what? Well, Sam, what is this website? Oh, go, go to I, I, you. You need to investigate instead of asking. Okay, the they have a list including actors, actresses, artists, athletes, and coaches. At the bottom, it says sociopaths. Check it out. Ahmadinejad. By the way, check out right in the middle. You've a bra. Next one. Controversial. Juice score one. Oh, Mel Gibson is the. <laughs> this is so weird. No one's like, who's under Eva Braun? Um, Samuel Bick. Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about this before. Wait, wait, he Sam. Tried... Why are you on Jew or not Jew? Because oh, he tried to kill you. Richard Nixon. It's also not how I spell my last name. Wait, wait, wait. So the guy who tried to kill Richard Nixon has the same name as you? I mean, mine is a different. I mean, our last names are spelled differently. Yeah, but they're said the same. Way. I know. Check the verdict. Um, sadly, a Jew. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the whole story is complicated. I looked into it once. Um, Sean Penn played him in a movie. Which is I weird. mean, I, I mean, if they knew you existed, you might have gotten that role, Sam. I don't. I mean, we kind of have similar eyes, maybe. Do you think there's anyone that listens to the podcast that thinks that that this guy hosts the podcast? No, no, he's that he. I think he's some some like eighty year old in Cote St. Luke is like, <laughs> I can't listen to that podcast for political reasons. Yeah, no. I hate that Sam Beck. Yeah, he tried to kill Nixon. Was it um, was it Nixon or Reagan? What does it say? Well, I don't remember a Nixon assassination attempt. No, it was it was like a low key one. He didn't actually end up pulling anything off. Beck was born a hundred percent Jewish, served in the army, got married, had kids. Perfectly normal dude. Then his wife divorced him. Yeah, there's a weird, like, mental health narrative through all oh, this that's bad. I see. Yeah. Okay. And then there's some reference that he was sympathetic with the Panthers, it's, but... It says, they... Yeah, it says in 1972, he latched onto the idea that the federal government was trying to oppress the poor. <laughs> it's phrased as if that's as absurd as UFOs. But yeah, there's a reference. There's been... There's writings about how he was ideologically aligned with the Panthers at the time. But then they kind of talk more about how he had mental health shit. Uh... Wow. Anyways. The so, only, only person who shares my name was the famous composer yeah. and the guy who lived across the street from me growing up. Yeah. But just to return to the Sorry. very important point, yes. today's episode was sponsored by the website JewOrNotJew.com. Really? Yeah. They sent us They sent us an email. Great. Yeah. Because I am totally broke. 
David, do you remember when we had the unfortunate job of sifting through the walrus piece that was entitled Jew v. Jew v. Jew v. Jew v. Jew? Oh, yeah, that was a really long one. Yeah, it was tough. Um, And there was one thing that I think we agreed on as far as kind of prescient analysis. Well, I feel like my takeaway from that was that the discussion included Barbara Kay so that it wouldn't be understood as a liberal analysis. Like you can have a liberal analysis if you include a right wing person. That's so that's definitely a takeaway, but not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make is about uh, Mr. Yoni Goldstein's reference to the fact that it might be difficult for the institutional Jewish community in Canada to pivot after the election if Harper didn't uh, win. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like what? Ha- like with an institutional Jewish community who so consistently and stridently supported Harper and denounced all other parties despite their support for Israel, what does that mean if Harper loses the election? Precisely. And what do you think happened after Harper lost the election? Uh, same old. Same old, but it, it I think it required a little bit of gymnastics in order to kind of maneuver their way around... Yeah, and do, well, I think that everyone knows that the Liberal Party's policies regarding Israel are pretty much the same as the Conservative Party. It seems like the main difference was their perspective on Iran. Yes, but I think on November 4th, Justin Trudeau called Sija, and Sija and the Canadian Jewish News were really kind of adamant about pushing that out there. So that was kind of the big thing that happened last week. Yeah, no, I, um, I, read, I read about that phone call. Uh, we heard from the journalist uh, Leela Sarek, who maybe was there or maybe was tapped in on the phone. It's unclear, but it's interesting. Sija repackages the articles from the CJN as press releases, but the CJN articles kind of read like press releases in the first place. So it's a kind of circle of press releases. The one issue that stood out for me was the emphasis on C-51. So the journalist at the CJN was talking about how important uh, passing Bill C-51 was to CJA and how involved they'd been in supporting it. And they wanted Trudeau to hold his position in supporting C-51, which for listeners who aren't aware, was a a piece of legislation with draconian levels of uh, repression and surveillance powers given to state agencies. Yeah, and the position of Trudeau's liberals is that they wanted to amend the legislation in a somewhat ambiguous way. They, they said they wanted to strengthen oversight of the intelligence bodies that would be empowered to do a whole lot more. And in the article, they mostly focused on this. I don't think they actually even talked about Iran. No, no. Um, for anyone who's been following the news, the question of Iran or the concern with Iran coming from the Jewish community has been almost nil. So it, it's just so weird because in the lead up to the election... Justin Trudeau's position on Iran was such a big deal for the Jewish community. It had protests outside of wealthy uh, Jewish donors who had decided to choose the liberals over the conservatives, with language comparing uh, liberal supporters to Hitler. And now it's just evaporated from the entire discourse within the institutional Jewish community. It's all C-51 now. Yes. Not, I mean, not surprising at all, but it, yeah, just, that's what we're dealing with now. So that's definitely the first major shift in the discourse since the elections happened. Yeah. So the other thing that I've noticed a bit, and we talked a bit about it last time, is that the Canadian Jewish News has also shifted a bit in tone, I'd say, roughly around since the election. Yeah, we we talked about this before we recorded, but I think there is overlap between the end of the election and what is taking place in Palestine now. It definitely feels like the tone of the Canadian Jewish News has shifted. Yeah, and I think it definitely is related to what's going on in Palestine, to the popular uprising and this wave of repression against it. 
And so you're seeing that tone reflected in the paper. There's There are these articles that are essentially just visit Israel or condemning the Palestinian resistance. But I think that if it was pre-election or just pre-election, that period right beforehand where all these institutional Jewish leaders were trying to dial back the rhetoric a bit, I think that we would actually see that support for Israel manifest a bit differently. Mm. It's definitely an uptick in the reactionary politics of the Canadian Jewish News and their Zionism. You're seeing that increase. But I think they're also freed up by the changes that have happened politically. But I mean, you think freed up in the sense that there's more leeway with a liberal party in power? Yeah, because before, I think that there was this concern that with the discourse getting so vitriolic and people attacking each other so harshly all the time within the community, even within the narrow political spectrum that is reflected institutionally, that represented a danger not just to the institutions, but also to the relationship between those institutions and political parties. And in the context of an election, I can understand how that would be really worrying Mm. from the people at the top. But now that the election's over, that danger is gone for the time being as well, right? So now people are free to just say whatever they want. I think we're seeing that in a lot of the reporting from the Canadian Jewish News, where I don't think there is as much of an understanding that things have to be maintained within this sort of construction of, of a centrist politic. But beyond the Canadian Jewish News, have you seen the institutional Jewish community have any more kind of awkward pivots since the election? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, like the, the, the political party government shift seems to be a pretty big one. Uh, beyond that, not really. Have you? For me, what I've mostly seen is this sort of quiet admission that the liberals are going to have the same policy around Israel that the conservatives have had. And this sort of double speak around it that, you know, several weeks ago, they're enemies of the Jewish people. And then now there is this development of several talking points that they're going to maintain the same policy with a different tone and that they just never really like that tone. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who is following our the, the new leader of the uh, nation state of Canada on Twitter, uh, he made clear last year in March uh, with a tweet, the BDS movement like Israeli apartheid has no place on Canadian campuses. I'm disappointed. Enough is enough. Couldn't be clearer. Yeah, and even a few days before the election, Justin Trudeau did an interview with the Canadian Jewish News, and he said that BDS was a new form of anti-Semitism in the world and goes against Canadian values. So... In terms of his relationship to BDS, it's very clear it's the same as the previous government. Uh, In terms of his support for Israel, it's clearly the same as the previous government. But what he's signaled consistently is that I'm going to continue these policies, but I'm going to do it in a different tone. I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't anger as many people. Yeah, no, definitely. And so policies are the same. The tone is slightly shifted, and the institutional Jewish community has effectively accepted that. And now it's time for... BDS. Watch. Watch. I read the text, I went through the footnotes, I went through it very carefully. There's only one conclusion one can reach, having read the book. And this is a scholarly judgment, it's not an ad hominem attack. Mr. Dershowitz has concocted a fraud. So Sam, I feel like this is shaping up to be my favorite segment. Oh yeah? Well, I, I don't know, This either this or Shkoyach. Yeah, I mean, do you have like, any particular reason why? It's just a really funny concept. Yeah. But it's also, I feel like it's a funny concept, but it also, it's given me the opportunity of of rounding up a bunch of disparate information going on here that 
I wouldn't have really known about in the same way if we weren't putting together the show. Yeah, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but maybe some people find it useful. Yeah, maybe. So what is on the agenda for this BDS Watch Watch? Um, so we're going to be just talking a bit about the University of Waterloo. Uh, ah, not, yes. Yeah, not, not an area that we're typically uh, drawn to in any sustained way. But on October 8th, a campaign called Ethical Collaboration at the University of Waterloo, which is part of the Palestine Solidarity Action Group. Uh, and a very inoffensive title for a coalition. Most definitely. Uh, they filed a 4,000 signature petition with the UW Federation of Students with the wow. goal of triggering a referendum on the question of whether that university should sever ties with five major Israeli universities. Oh, wow. Do you know if the 4,000 people constitutes a significant percentage of the school's population? Oh, I'm not sure, actually. But okay. I, my understanding is that that was what was needed procedurally okay. to trigger this referendum. And if the measure wins, then the referendum would force the Student Federation to take up the issue as what they call an advocacy priority in its dealings with the university. So it's not binding for the university in any way. It's just binding for the Student Federation. Okay. And a piece of information that's pretty important for this development is that the vice president of the university is also the vice president of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, University and Local Partner Services. That appears to be a conflict of interest of some kind. Yeah, because the University and Local Partner Services vice president is charged with strengthening ties between Canadian and Israeli universities and spearheading pro-Israel activity on campuses nationally. Oh, wow. So what transpired? Well, since the petition was filed, the CEO of the newly created Hill Ontario has been working with uh, Zionist students at the university to create opposition to the petition. Also, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs launched a mass email campaign urging people to contact the president of the university and thank him for partnering with Israeli institutions. Which is a tactic that has been used time and time again. I mean, in the in the case of Stephen Salaita, for example, they yeah. just had donors and residents in Chicago kind of trying to call the, the leadership. So it's definitely a tactic that's used yeah. fairly frequently. But they've also been pressuring the Student Federation. And as a result, they've been closely scrutinizing every one of the 4,000 signatures since they got it. Uh, and that's why there hasn't been any announcement of a referendum yet. But if all the signatures are confirmed to actually be University of Waterloo students, then the referendum will be called immediately. Yeah, hot tip from David and Sam. Don't make fake signatures on these kind of things. Yeah, terrible idea. So that was the first piece of information from our Ontario correspondent. Uh, what else <laughs> is happening in Ontario, David? Um, well, about a week after that petition was filed at York University in Toronto, Independent Jewish Voices started their first campus group, which over the last month has been participating in, in this growing movement on campus to lobby the Board of Governors to divest from companies profiting from arms sales to Israel. Uh, and I'm assuming that the direction that this conversation is, is going to go in in the next several seconds is you're going to tell me that some people were not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's definitely correct. About 10 days after Hasbro Fellowships, which we talked about previously on the show, put up an article on their website that was attacking the new IJV chapter. They called them a volatile and misinformed group, and they referred to BDS as a well-known hate movement. It just and I read through their statement, and it just seemed pretty clear that they were fearful that an IJV presence at York would actually bolster support for Students Against Israeli Apartheid, which is a group mm. that Hasbro's actually spent years trying to isolate on York campus. Yeah. Well, good luck to IJV at York. Yeah. But yeah, as part of BDS Watch Watch, it seems like we're almost obliged to have a conversation about what's happening in France. Have you been following it all? Not in a lot of detail. Like I just kind of saw some headlines. Long story short, in the end of October, France's highest court of criminal appeals upheld the conviction of more than 10 Palestine solidarity activists for publicly calling for the boycott of Israeli goods. But what was, what, do you know the actual, what they actually charged them with? They were actually charged with some kind of freedom of the press violation uh, that was mm. based along discrimination on 
national, racial, or religious grounds. Oh, right. Yeah, that's similar to, I guess, what the Harper government were kind of flirting with. And so it appears that the French court is upholding some of the strongest anti-BDS laws in the world, stronger than even Israel. Yeah, and it's interesting because today there was actually an announcement that the European Union is going to be labeling all products that are shipped there from settlements in the occupied West Bank. And yeah, this the decision today to label products from the West Bank was met with pretty loud condemnation from uh, Zionists. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it. Uh, there are a couple of European Union uh, representatives who are saying that they did not understand this as a boycott because they're just labeling it. They weren't refusing it. And they said that supporters can buy it and people who don't want to support it can boycott it, but that's not up to them. According to everyone's projections, it seems like this is estimated to cut about $50 million out of West Bank exports, which is about a fifth of their uh, yearly exports. But compared to Israel's yearly trade revenue with the European Union, it's it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, I mean, at best, we can see this kind of a decision as the result of pressure from activists and organizers in Europe. Uh, it probably won't have the biggest effect, but it's definitely a small, probably symbolic win for them. Yeah, but, but, but getting back to the issue about criminalizing BDS using hate crime legislation, yeah. it's interesting that this is happening now because it's, it, it felt like it felt to me like a lot of institutional Jewish groups in North America had kind of been distancing themselves from this tactic. They didn't seem to view it as particularly effective. I know the Anti-Defamation League has been consistently speaking out against it. They don't feel like it will withstand legislation in the United States. And in Canada, when even the Harper government were starting to express interest in pursuing this, they backed away from it when a CBC reporter was questioning them on it. So it's, it's a little unclear where this fits in to the strategy of the Zionist movement at the moment. Light your shamash and burn down that Christmas tree. It's time for Shkoyach. So for any new listeners, this is the point in the show where me and David give some kind of a congratulation or a, a big ups to a person or a group or an event that we think is worthy of note. The term shkoyach is a Yiddish word, derivative of religious practice, and it basically means congratulations in some way. Yeah, I said I know I said that BDS Watch Watch was my favorite segment, but I take it back. Shkoyach's my favorite segment. It's my favorite time of the show. Well, Shkoyach is very happy to hear that. Uh, so what's your shkoyach this week, Sam? I'm going to give my shkoyach to the lefty institutional Jewish groups in New York City. Oh, uh, which, which groups in particular? So I'm focusing in particular on the Arbiter Ring, which is the um, Workman's Circle, uh, as more of the kind of the institutional group. And then JFREJ, which is Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, which oh, is yeah. more of a grassroots group. And they've been working together recently. So what, what have they been working on? Like, what are you giving them a square for? The square in particular goes to the efforts that both JFREJ and the Arbiter Ring have undertaken in support of the fight for 15 campaign going on across the united states now oh that's good like they but did they actually support it like on the ground yeah physically so they actually were in the last couple of days they were mobilizing members via the listserv the facebook various other social media mediums and kind of trying to get people to come out because every kind of half year now the fight for 15 does a walkout in new york city across fast food restaurants where they kind of support people walking out for the day. Mm. And that requires having people really early in the morning, six or seven. I actually did this two or three years ago, kind of coming out and supporting the workers walking out. 
Where were you going on strike from? It was a combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell near Union Square. How did it go? I mean, I think that we can look at it on a big scale and we can look at it on the kind of small scale. This might be a larger discussion about union tactics in the United States and leftist movements, but basically they've been doing one of these every couple of months for the last two or three years. Mm. And it does seem that on a large scale level, there are more discussions about minimum wages. There are some regulations in the fast food industry. So depending on what your idea of change and social change is, they have been fairly effective. But how, so how did Jay Fredge and Workman Circle organize on the ground? Like they just, they just got a lot of their membership out? I, I think there's been stronger connection between Jews for racial and economic justice and the Fight for 15 organizers. Mm. But recently the Arbiter Ring, I think underwent a change in leadership and they're kind of, they seem to be more aligned with the Jay Fredge orientation. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, so one of the, so the new director or associate director of the Workman Circle and Tobak wrote this piece that was published in Jew School, and it was called Fight for 15, Bring Back Those Yiddish Sashes. Oh, I've seen all the, all those old pictures from the labor marches. Yeah, so for anyone who has not seen those, there's kind of countless photos of demos in the early 1900s with people who are holding signs that are either in Yiddish or English, but also have these sashes that have Yiddish words on them. Oh, that's so that's really great to hear. I feel like there are all these old Jewish leftist organizations that if they still exist are kind of just these anachronisms that are fairly inactive. So it's just really cool to hear that the Arbiter Ring's sort of shaking off the dust that's been uh, encapsulating that organization for a long time. Definitely. There are there are a few there are a few things that I don't entirely agree with, but I don't actually want to focus that on that right now. But yeah, the sashes that people were wearing in some of the photos from the other day said the worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. So it's kind yeah. of hearkening back to that. Totally. political point. But yeah, so square to the Arbiter Ring and to Jews for Racial and Economic Justice for supporting grassroots movements that are happening in New York City and across the United States. That is a great square. That is a positive square that is in the bank, David. Yeah, totally. It's hard to find sometimes. So given that this is your favorite time of the of the show, how how are you going to contribute to this segment? Oh, um, so my shkoyach for today is to a group of indigenous women who actually occupied the Merseille Bridge last night. We had Amanda Lickers on the show about two episodes ago, who was speaking to us about the struggle being led by indigenous women, mostly from Ganawage, to prevent the city of Montreal from dumping a massive amount of untreated sewage into the St. Lawrence River. And it was announced yesterday that at 12.01 a.m. today, they're going to proceed with a dump. They got the approval of the federal minister of the environment that it was okay to do so, and they're going to be doing it all week. It's a, it's a huge environmental disaster, and it's going to have a lot of long-term consequences. After this was announced, these indigenous women went to the Merseille Bridge, and they set up a blockade. Oh, wow. So this blockade started at midnight? I'm not sure exactly what time. They might, I think they got there before midnight, but they were there at midnight. Okay. But I actually have a clip from the blockade uh, that I could play. So we're here tonight to save the river, and um, I think it's an important point that everybody understand. The alternatives exist. They're out there. Instead of putting $166 million on the Olympic Stadium, instead of putting $11 million on baseball fields that no one cares about, instead of a new aquapark, instead of decorating the Champlain Bridge with lights for the 350th anniversary, that money could have been used to create biomethane plants that would solve this long term. So if you believe that there's nothing else that we can do, You've been duped. You've been fooled. The solutions are there. We just need to demand them. What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? When do we want it? 
So again, Maishkoyak is to this group of women for the brave act of resistance in face of this colonial violation of this river by the city of Montreal. I couldn't agree more. For anyone who was concerned about sarcasm of earlier episodes, we came through with pretty clear, positive Shkoyaks this week. Yeah, that's true. Although I almost gave my Shkoyak to Ben Carson for saying, did you see this, where he said that the pyramids were actually not built in the way that we understand them today, but they were built by the biblical Joseph to store grain inside of? Yeah. That was some wacky That was. Yeah, I, I thought it was Joseph, Jesus's dad, no? Or fake dad? Oh, I thought I thought Joseph from the Old Testament. Like Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Isn't Jesus's stepdad named Joseph? I have no idea, Sam. Yeah, I mean, I I just assumed it was Jesus's dad because Jesus is important, but I I don't know. I've never read the the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Solomon Ben Solomon Carson said that grains were in the pyramid. But is he saying that the pyramids are completely hollow and you can go in and out? I I to be honest, I think what his point was is that humans didn't exist. At that point. Humans didn't exist? Yeah. I just assumed his argument was a creationist argument. Like, I don't get what the value... Oh, what? Yeah, because, like, I don't know what the value of him taking away Egyptians building the pyramids are. That's even wackier. I don't think that's what he meant, I'm pretty sure. I thought what he meant is just that it was a different person who made them. And that's his reading of the Bible. And all these liberal journalists keep making fun of me. And I don't care because I'm going to stand up for what's right, which is my personal theory on the history of the pyramids. No, no, no. I'm pretty sure it has to do with um, creationism. Huh. Because maybe the pyramids are older than the Bible. So they... Is that possible? I don't know. Joseph, the biblical Joseph, not God. Huh. Is biblical Joseph a Christian way of saying God? No. Yeah, so I don't think that's what it is. It's Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Yeah, Joseph. exactly. That's, that's what you thought. think it yeah, is. Yeah, of course. Who else is there? Well, I think it might be Jesus' dad. Jesus' dad is supposed to be God. He's a carpenter. No, no, no. Jesus' stepdad, whatever. His, he had a... St- oh, well, his mom had a husband. Oh. Yeah. What was his deal? He's just a dude. Yeah? Again, I'm, I'm no uh, Christian theologian, but I'm pretty sure he was just an average guy. I mean, that's a story. And right God there. decided to, uh, I don't know what God did, but God and his, his, uh, his wife decided to. Or that must be a weird experience to be the father of the Messiah and just be a regular dude. A stepdad. Yeah. I mean, I don't a think. A stepdad to the Messiah. I, I don't think that Mary had a whole lot of agency in this thing. So like, I don't know if Joe, like. So there's another, <laughs> what you're saying is there's another Joseph that he was probably referring to because he's Christian. Possible. But it seems clear that we have no strong understanding of Jesus. Well, I would actually argue that Donnie Osmond's portrayal of the other Joseph has made the other Joseph, the Joseph that we're both probably more familiar with from the Old Testament, more prevalent in current Western pop culture. Uh, I'm pretty sure it just has to do with the Broadway spectacle, no? Well, I mean, he toured, like Donnie Osmond toured on... Donnie Osmond played Joseph in the touring production of Joseph and Technicolor Dreamco after starring as him on Broadway. So I know that he's a famous actor, but I don't know anything more. Oh, uh, he had also this, yeah, him and his sister, Donnie Marie Osmond, were really famous. They had their own talk show, remember? Donnie and Marie? In 1955? No, I mean, they were a- they, they were acting earlier, but they had a talk show in the 90s. Uh, no, I, I missed that. I was watching YTV.
So today is the 11th of November, and within the territories governed by the state of Canada, that's a day that's understood as Remembrance Day. Yeah, and we're recording at CKUT, which is on the McGill campus in Montreal. And every year for the last couple of years, or for as long as I can remember, there's been an over-the-top ceremony uh, replete with soldiers and cannons. So I think in a lot of people's minds, Remembrance Day is understood as a commemoration of people who fought in the First and Second World War. But in fact, it's a celebration of militarism much more broadly. And there's an organization who's challenging the complicity of McGill University in militarism on campus, as well as colonialism on campus. So our recommendation today is for Demilitarize McGill. We have Kay and Sunil here in the studio uh, to talk a bit about it. Thanks for coming, Kay. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so can you tell people a bit about Demilitarize McGill? Sure. So Demilitarize McGill is kind of a loose grouping of people who are in various ways opposed to military research and military collaboration more broadly at McGill. And military collaboration at McGill takes a lot of different forms. So everything from weapons research that's been going on since the 60s, um, things that are called thermobaric explosives that are made in the mechanical engineering building, to research on drone software, to flight simulation software, to unmanned aerial vehicles, to robotics. Um, there's lots of different kinds of technologies research that happens at McGill that has funding coming either directly from the Canadian forces or the U.S. military or other militaries or funding coming directly from weapons contractors that serve multiple uh, different militaries. Other forms that this military collaboration takes includes um, recruitment at tech fairs and job fairs for CSIS, Public Safety Canada, which runs the RCMP, and also the annual Remembrance Day ceremony, which happened this morning on campus, which basically looks like a bunch of armored vehicles and RCMP officers, SPVM, McGill security, and soldiers and veterans on campus, and cannons that blast so loud that they shake the campus windows. Yeah, and so this has been happening on campus for several years, and there's also been strong resistance to these events taking place, right? Yeah, so two years ago, there was a small banner drop that just read Demilitarize McGill. Um, last year, some anti-military organizers on campus uh, stood with placards silently kind of adjacent to the ceremony, um, and the placards read statistics about sexual assault in the Canadian forces, um, examples of atrocities committed by the Canadian forces, etc. And um, this year, one of the main acts of resistance to the ceremony was uh, a large banner drop that happened on the wall of the Red Path Library. Um, so just right, basically right at the side of where the ceremony is happening. Um, and the banner read, Canada kills, colonialism here, imperialism abroad, and occupation resist Canada. And they had the same thing in French, as well as reading hashtag remember this at the bottom, which is also the hashtag that's been used to promote uh, an event series happening this week. So I know you have a week of events planned through Demilitarize McGill. Uh, unfortunately, when people are listening to this podcast, uh, they'll already have happened. Uh, but on the day that this podcast is coming out on Wednesday, the 18th, I know that night there is uh, an event happening, right? Yeah. So tonight, if you're listening on Wednesday, the 18th, is uh, Ganyaka Haka Resistance to Colonialism and Militarism. And it's going to be a discussion featuring Gantanet the Horn, who um, is a member of the Bear Clan uh, in Ganawage and also one of the women title holders of the land. And she recently submitted a seizure notice to McGill University taking issue with 
not having been returned funds that were taken from the Six Nations Trust Fund to pay for the creation of McGill University, as well as to take issue with the fact that there are weapons being developed on McGill campus, which is stolen land and thus in violation of the great law of peace. And so we're having Gantanetta to come into the SMU building at 7.30 p.m. on tonight, Wednesday, November 18th, uh, to talk <laughs> to talk about um, her seizure notice and to uh, to give a little bit more context and history. And if people are interested in learning more about DMAIL or hearing about this event that's happening, where should they look? So you can check out the website demilitarizemcgill.com. Um, and if you're looking specifically for event information, you can go to demilitarizemcgill.com slash remember this. Uh, and if you'd like to get in touch with DMIL more directly, you can send an email to demilitarizemcgill at riseup.net. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kins. Thanks for having me. So again, that's our recommendation for today. We're recommending that people either get involved if you're in the Montreal area or just look up some of the work that's been done by Demilitarized McGill. And just a quick reminder, if you're listening on Wednesday the 18th and you're in Montreal or in the greater Montreal area, like Cadence mentioned, there's an event taking place tonight at 3480 McTavish. The title of the event is Ganegahaga Resistance to Colonialism and Militarism, and it's at 730 once again, you can find this on their website and on their Facebook page. So this also brings us to a separate but very related point, which is that we actually haven't gotten any hate mail. No, David, I feel like we talked about this already, but I want to reemphasize how many people asked me in a very honest, concerned way about whether or not we got hate mail. Yeah, me too. Everyone's always asking how much hate mail we're getting, and the answer is none. Yeah, and then I say, oh, it's part of our shtick. And then they're like, that's not funny. I, I agree. It's not funny. But the reason I bring this up is that we're actually not completely opposed to hate mail because we just really like the idea of reading mail on the show. And we haven't done that yet. We we originally conceived the show as having a letters from listeners segment and we, we don't have it because we've received no vitriol. We've received no death threats, which is great. I hope we hope that continues, but we also haven't received any critical feedback. So this time. isn't entirely true, David. We did get an email recently from a senior activist in Montreal who mentioned that we <laughs> should keep up the good work. That was a great email. It was very concise. Yeah. But yeah, again, anyone wants to send letters, please do. And the other thing I think is if people send critical mail, hopefully that's us reaching people who wouldn't normally listen. Mm -hmm. Or people who like our politics, but think that this is terrible. Reach out. You're probably right. We can we can uh, take your input. Trafe podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CQT 90.3 FM. Today's episode was recorded at their studios in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, to Sack Syndrome for the music, and to our unnamed social media consultant. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F. And please, please send comments and suggestions to treyfpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. I can't believe I can't lean back in this stupid chair. There's more of these outside. Yeah? Yeah. Oh. I just thought you liked the Macher chair. I mean, I do, but not being able to lean back is a huge problem. Sorry, this Macher chair is a is a disaster in disguise. It lures you in with the how it look, looks like a luxury chair.
disaster sale. You can't trust the Macher chairs, David. Oh my god, my back hurts. Every time I move, it makes a noise. Yeah. Here, hold on. I'm just gonna do this. Listeners, he's going through a lot for you right now. Okay. All right. Thanks for bearing with me here. Okay, ready to go.